Welcome to Magra Radio, a broadcast project of Magra Books, streaming worldwide for your listening pleasure. We bring you news that stays news. Hi, I'm Sean Pesson here with author Dennis Phillips, talking about his new book published by Magra Books, Desert Sequence. So, Dennis, thank you for coming. Thank you, Sean. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read part two of a work called Mapamundi. Part two is called Desert Sequence. The first section of that is simply called First Voice. One. Morning wind warm. Cloud shadows on basin's floor. How touch summons memory. If death could be like that. Two. Or is it that I summon you, even though you're made of words? The record's gone missing, and though you're never present, fragments, drafts, recollected images clutter but disperse. Instead, there's place, your house, surrounded by gum trees, perhaps on a hill, a tough gravel road that twists for miles, sends up a pillar of dust to warn you, to give you time to dissolve. Though I keep aging, you've remained the same. Young, you've always seemed older, yet I can't put a time to you. And though I've never seen your hideaway, I can taste the dust as it betrays my approach can smell the eucalyptus bark in the heat of day, can feel night's sharp cold and the star's enormous map in dry, dry air. I once thought I'd find you asleep on Middle Sea, but what I heard were only footsteps, as if I'd stepped out, as if I'd set foot to gravel and walked towards your house. Three. Full winter, silver light, gray concrete. The drone we hear, the drone that doesn't worry us. High steel clouds, warmly cold, as Melville might have said, in the poem and encyclopedia. Time's winged chariot, somehow standing still. Who's left to marvel at all we've made? Scarlet sun burnt into a January sky. Desert wind-driven firestorm, the only storm. Where find the witness in this winter of drought? Rain falls up. Four. Here, hold this open for a long minute because we both know it's about to go away. If this is a map, then all maps are maps of the world in any sentence as a narrative, but picture a vast desert basin, and you can fly above it at great speed, and you can shoot straight up over it into the dark of atmosphere, and you can dive down to skim its contours. Perhaps you can taste the air's heated strata. Perhaps it's winter, and frigid night has yet to give way to shadeless heat. Picture a canyon deeply placed in a desert mountain's cleft 
that opens to a worn dirt and gravel road, then high on a hill, a house, a ring of eucalyptus trees, the sound of an owl, a sliver of moon still in the daylit sky. You've been there before, but you can't remember where you've recorded it. Were you a visitor? Did you live there? Was someone with you? And if there was, who are you? And more to the point, why are we or you or am I out here so far from others, so far from a city? Five. Came to the gates amid unknown travelers, the gatekeeper just another vagrant. If only there were a single word for the known and the unknown. Sun increments north on the eastern scale, chariot with or without wings. They ask to enter, but there are no gates. The keeper among them, ordering coffee with a language they give him, in shops suddenly material, trying to let go the voice that stops understanding. And when it's desert again, and the clouds' shadows displace the city, the keeper no longer keeps anything but the rising currents of his own memories. Dusk is near again, across a dark valley, the lights of a gated city. Just to start off, I know that Desert Sequence is the second in a completed trilogy, and I wondered if you wanted to situate this this book in, in that sequence. Sure. Um, so uh, I may, I mean, this may be a bigger project than the trilogy, but as it stands now in terms of what's completed, the, the book of which Desert Sequence is a part is called Mapamundi. And the Mapamundi were, um, Mapemunde were uh, uh, kind of imaginary worlds when, 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 the, when the world as we know it today was really the work of the imagination of uh, geographers. So I just took that idea, plus you know, the graphics are beautiful. Those old uh, drawings are extraordinary. They really are. Yeah. And so I took that idea as a way of kind of, at this stage in my career, almost recharting where I am and where I've been. And since my work is not terribly personal, it has to do less with biography than the traces that I've left in, through my other works. Um, so I've begun with the first sequence is called The City. The middle sequence, which I just read from, is called Desert Sequence, and the last is called Islands. And I'm working on a bunch of other sections that may be part of a, another book, but it's too soon to say. Um, is that Does that answer your question? I think so. Okay. Um, now, in separating these sequences, right, the city, desert sequence, and then islands, yeah. uh, are these particular geographic, I guess, topographies that are of interest to you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and part of that is having gone back through, you know, that old expression that you just keep writing the same poem over and over again. And, you know, there's probably more truth to that than one would like to admit. And so I, in looking at the patterns and looking at my obsessions and looking at the themes that come up again and again, whether I'm 
am intentionally trying to do so or not, I began seeing that, yes, there's a huge amount of my work that revolves around the idea of the city. And that is informed by a lot of my study of Homeric era literature. Uh, because part of what's happening in Homer is a kind of uh, definition of the city, especially in the Iliad, but also in a way throughout the Odyssey. So it's a big, it's an important idea in, in European thought, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, so, I and then I think partly because I'm from Los Angeles, uh, living in a desert, even though it doesn't always look like a desert. Um, the imagery, the stark imagery of the desert has always been part of my uh, sort of internal landscape, whether I like it or not. I don't particularly like it, but, you know, there it is. And then part of the, another part of my internal topography has to do with islands and water and so on. And, and uh, so originally I was going to call the third section islands, which I may still do. I mean, I was going to call it water and I still may do a water section. And the first piece in, in the island section is called water, which is a longish piece. Um, and that kind of laid the groundwork for a kind of, a kind of a landscape that makes up the work and I, that I felt that maybe I could then build upon those geographical uh, features with whatever else it is that I do. I think that that's really interesting, this idea of like teasing or playing with the geography as a language and thinking specifically back to like the Mapamundi and how they would be like just shy of invented worlds in mm -hmm. terms of how they're representing information. And I did not know what they were until I Googled it to figure out like, uh -huh. what it was you were referencing. But when, like, one of the things that really struck me from that you know, oh-so-academic Google search yeah. was this idea that a lot of people use it as justification or use the Mapamundi as justification for making the claims that people thought that the world was flat. And yet, in order to construct them, they had to have like this intimate knowledge of the roundness of the world, mm -hmm. right? So there's this like weird... Um, situation where the expression in the maps is transformed and mm -hmm. interpreted and also misinterpreted by the not like who has what knowledge and where it's located and i think that it's a really interesting issue that emerges in some of these poems that i may want to like have you comment on if you have comments on them like how your mapping process allows for worlds that may have been misinterpreted to, to sort of emerge or one's perception of the world is always a misinterpretation. And uh, I mean, it is both an accurate representation of what one thinks it is, and then one understands that it's also going to be completely wrong. Um, and so there, we think we know more now. We think we know what the world is now. We, we have looked at our planet, or what I call the wanderer we live on at the last poem of the, of the book, uh, that's what planet means, right? Wanderer. And, uh, you know, so, so we think that we know things because we have way more empirical knowledge than we once did. But of course, it doesn't take, you know, a rocket scientist to figure out that the more we know, as I think Socrates said, uh, the more we realize we know nothing. And so this is partly the work of being of a certain age and realizing 
at least I'm, I realize that I'm still wrestling with the things I was wrestling with when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in my mid-60s. Uh, sometimes I flatter myself and think that I have a more subtle knowledge of what those problems are. And other times I realize I'm just as much at sea now as I was then with, you know, arguably a few more chops to apply to the problem. It's interesting that you use the being at sea uh, metaphor, because my next question (laughs) is about uh, Melville and Melville's sort of emergence in your text in a couple of key sort of um, moments. I was wondering, would you want to talk a little bit about your relationship to Melville? (laughs) Melville, uh, I seem to be drawn to people who write about the ocean in one way or the other. Uh, And even though my study of Homer really, oddly enough, began because of my strange autodidactic form of education, it really began through my interest in James Joyce, who doesn't write all that much about the ocean, but um, Homer certainly does. And uh, Charles Olson once flattered himself uh, at a public lecture by telling the people at the lecture that he was very happy to have been compared to Homer as, you know, another great writer of the sea. Okay. Um, and, and Melville, of course, uh, not only is interesting because of, you know, I mean, almost all of his work, not entirely all, but almost all of it takes place on water, if, you know, the ocean or a river in one important example. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, in my opinion, I really think that Moby Dick is the beginning of uh, of Anglophone literary modernism. And so that connection to Melville is very important to me. Plus, it's just a, just a really good... Moby Dick is just a really good book. And so it echoes in my head for reasons that maybe I just explained and, and maybe, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never exactly know why, but it circulates there. His adverbial... Um, his adverbial excesses, uh, which I would never use except when I'm making fun of it in a poem, are wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Warmly cold. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and in that particular example, right? There's the uh, the sort of just delight in the paradox, um, and. Um, this may be more of a comment than a question, but uh, one of the wonderful paradoxes that you pose in this book is the, if only there were a word for knowing and not knowing. <laughs> I thought that that really just captures so much, doesn't it? <laughs> elsewhere in the book, uh, and that, uh, anyway, elsewhere in the book, not, I don't think in Desert Sequence, I was riffing off the Greek word xenia, which means both a stranger and a guest and a host. And I, the line is something like, "Once there was a, once there was a word that meant both, you know, guest and host." So I would, yeah. But yeah. Hmm. good observation. Well, good, good observation. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was also interesting is some of the words that appear um in particular the word cerament which uh-huh. 
like where did that word even like <laughs> enter into your life because what i like looked it up i thought wow what a cool word and then i had never heard of it before though <laughs> and couldn't even think of places where i might have come across i'm it. pretty sure that's out of shakespeare if i'm not mistaken hmm. which i might be i didn't make it up though it's possible it's a real word yeah <laughs> it's possible he used so many words <laughs> and so one of the things uh, in this like careful selection of words and these sort of contradictions or paradoxes that emerge that I thought was really cool was uh, in poem number four in the first voice you or the poem makes the claim uh, if this is a map then all maps are maps of the world and any sentence is a narrative and then it has like that that wonderful but that appears and then the colon and then we sort of uh, pivot hard into an image followed by a series of direct address questions. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, because I had read on the Project for Innovative Poetry blog, that your work, according to them, is in fiction and poetry. And oftentimes your poetry elects to delete narrative connections in favor of these other kinds of connections, apparently, that are supposedly only possible in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and... I was wondering, when you're using the strategy of resisting the narrative, right, of inserting that that but sort of to disrupt what, you know, maybe like Roland Barthes might say is like the narrative being that long sentence, and then going into essentially this long sentence that resists that narrative, mm-hmm. or the narrative impulse, do you see it as like a, a resistance to the idea that there is narrative, or that narrative is an imposition on the world, or that narrative is omitted in these instances, like there is narrative, but like you were pulling it out, or that it is necessary to delete narrative in order to see deeper meanings. Are those my only choices? Those are the only ones that I could come up with. I like made a grid. I was like, yes, Um, no, 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 yes, yes. (laughs) Well, I think it was probably Douglas Messily who came out with, came up with that idea that I was, you know, deleting narrative, which is not, it may seem that way, but that isn't necessarily what I've been trying to do. But I definitely feel as though I've been having a wrestling match with narrative. Uh, narrative is essential to the structure of the English language and probably any other language because narrative is a sequencing and we perceive the world through a kind of sequencing even if neuroscience proves otherwise. We think we see the world through a kind of sequencing and hence as I said, you know, if, if it isn't a map, it's a map anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm interested in what Aaron Shuren called narrativity. I think other people call narratology. I'm interested in the. I'm interested in what happens with the sequence, and and both when one creates the illusion of a continuous sequence and when one creates the illusion of a broken sequence. So depending mm-hmm. on the modality that one's working with at a given moment. Uh, a strategy might be to have a more continuous sequence or a less continuous sequence. I'm not committed one way or the other to to one thing or the other. I'm I'm committed to using whatever works for me in what I'm trying to do at the moment. There's no that that is my ideology. Not it is not a pro or con narrative. I think that that uh, I, I think that when a publisher writes the blurb on the back of the book, not the publisher of Magra books, but other <laughs> publishers, they're they're anticipating some imagined reader and how can they soften the blow if they've got someone who's obscure and difficult as I am. Uh, you know, and that's what they do. But it really doesn't have much to do with what I do. You know, because 
it, I thought it was such a, like a weird observation to make in the wake of somebody like Seymour Chapman, right, who writes about sequencing and narrative, right? And basically, we're programmed socially to just look at two events and if they happen close to each other then definitely you know there's some kind of causal relationship and even though we can recognize that that's a fallacy or that they may not have any relationship at all that these are just two events happening in the universe yeah you're right that we would just impose narrative on it which we do all the time yeah like if you if you're standing behind someone in a grocery line and you see five random things they're buying the tendency is to want to figure out, well, why are they why are they buying all of those five things at once? Oh, X lacks in toilet paper. Oh, they must be having a difficulty. <laughs> you know, but it may the X lack may be for someone else, right? And the mm-hmm. toilet paper for yet a third person, and the person's there, you know, doing favors for others. You never know. You can cut that out. Oh no, it's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Got to talk about poop, or else we're not talking about anything. And so, with all of that present, one of the things that was also really interesting about this book for me was the the different oppositional tensions that keep emerging so that we might have a relationship between the Reci and the Histoire where the events as they're unfolding are complicated if there are events even by the way in which they're unfolding, right? So especially in poem number four, uh, voice one, that all of these... You like the prose section. I do like the prose section. <laughs> okay. I mean, we could talk about line breaks too. No, no, but... no, that's good, that's good. <laughs> but in particular... Uh, being a guy who's like works a narrative and yeah. is obsessed with story, that there would be a section that speaks directly to that would you know draw me in. Um, but you have like this seeming opposition, right? That there is narrative, but so there is there I see, but there's also this histoire that we're trying to put together. And if we can't assemble a plot, then the story is just doing its own thing, maybe, or that it, there are other paths that it can pursue. We have the constant tension between the signifier and signified, as we all do in all, like the postmodern, <laughs> or if we have or ever left the modern, yeah, yeah. okay, <laughs> right, like uh, where there's the there are words that come and go that attain meanings or adopt meanings or reject meanings and continue on that the language itself is describing but also collapsing mm-hmm. all possibility. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about these themes as they appear specifically in a desert, specifically in Los Angeles. Well, I never attempt to write about Los Angeles, although Los Angeles sometimes asserts itself. Um, I mean, I, I think you just described described that phenomenon pretty well. Um, they're not exactly the terms that I think about when I'm working on something, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. Uh, I guess one of my important early influences when I was really sort of at the beginning of all this was not a poet, but it was James Joyce. And I was very interested in, uh, in, in certain parts of Ulysses, for example, where you start pulling out the stops um, of syntax I'm thinking in particular of the the four o'clock hour in Ulysses that takes place in the bar where Joyce is really trying to imitate music as much as he is uh, trying to tell a story. And for me, as a young writer, that was a kind of, that was a territory that I wanted to inhabit that was some, I mean, I, I, I think I'm always pulled by the traditions of poetry 
But I was equally pulled by Joyce's breaking of tradition in prose narrative in what he was doing in certain parts of Ulysses, that, that chapter being one of them. Chapter 13, I think it is. No, it's 12. Anyway, it's the four o'clock hour. Mm -hmm. Sirens. And so um, that, that idea of, I mean, just to put it in the simplest, the idea of what a run-on sentence could be, the idea that, you know, in old-fashioned grammar, if a sentence is a complete thought, what happens if it's not? What happens if you pull out the stops? Uh, what happens in music if you pull out the stops of tonality or pull out the stops of expectation? Um, what kind of uh, what kind of feeling can you evoke by trying by asking the reader to let go of the handles that we all tend to hold on to, especially with language? It's always been my feeling that in music or in visual art, it's easier to use the materiality of sound or visual things because we're less dependent on those things to get from point A to point B in our quotidian day. Um, so letting go of that sort of instrumental need that we have and allowing language to be a, a material out of which we construct something um, really interests me. And once you can, once you can do that, I mean, if you can do that, then you've got this big palette to play with. And part of it is narrative and part of it is music and part of it is psychological and part of it is emotive and part of it is intellectual and analytical. And there doesn't have to be uh, a kind of non-permeable membrane between all of those things. We need it to be that way if we need to buy a loaf of bread or find out where the train station is. Then you don't want you, you want the membranes to be really firm. Mm -hmm. But if you're not trying to do that, if you're trying to do something else, then that's what I would refer to as pulling out the stops or taking out the membranes or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use that talks about the fluidity of all the various levels of possibilities and how we treat language as a material. Hmm. So do you think then that the, the revelation of possibilities and you know, removing these stops makes certain statements possible? I mean, statements that I would make or statements that you would make about the work, for example? I think I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to be asking this question. Well, so I'll, take a chance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, by removing the stops and producing this text, is this text, do you see it as an experiment in possibility or do you see it as a declarative statement on a thing? I'm not sure I see it as either of those things. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with the term experiment, um, and yet I also think that any artist is always experimenting. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So what's the hesitation with experimental? Oh, well, I don't have a problem with experimentation. I suppose that coming from what you might describe as the sort of left wing of American poetics, experimentation, I don't think this is how you meant it, but you know, being experimental is a way of diminishing or, um, or marginalizing a certain kind of poetry. 
and that's my my objection is political mm-hmm. within you know what Nathaniel uh, Tarn calls you know po biz. Um, I don't have a problem with experimentation qua experimentation at all. In fact, that is what we should all be doing all the time. If I if I can you know make a declaration, but uh, it is marginalizing. Um, when, and I, as I said, I, I know you didn't mean it that way. So I try to think of, I think one of the euphemisms I came up with is like, you know, explore, explorative uh, to describe work that is in the process of an inquiry. But then shouldn't it always be that? I mean, you might hope. <laughs> uh, and it's so interesting, too, because like coming up, um, I was always taught like the cool kids are the experimental writers. It, so I have a very different reaction to the term where it doesn't feel marginalizing. Yeah. It's actually like for me, the opposite. When people talk about experimental literature, it's like those are the people whose table you want to sit at. Well, and then I <laughs> like supposedly, and then there's the sort of old fuddy duddy part of me that says that, you know, it's all been done already. So people who want to think of themselves as experimental are just people who haven't read enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Cause like, uh, as you, uh, uh, as I would infer from what you have said, you know everybody's already been experimenting, right? Like that's what was going on. <laughs> it's all a gigantic experiment. I mean, how about this? I'm going to write a poem about traveling through hell, purgatory, and heaven, and I'm going to make up a form, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and I'm going to write it in ten syllable lines. I mean, is that not an experiment? It seems yeah. like it. It seems like it's got all of the experimental stuff going on. It would definitely foreground uh, Ulipo concerns, right? <laughs> it all feels very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe this isn't answering your question, but here's what occurred to me as you were asking it, and that is that, and maybe this is just stating the obvious, but I really deeply believe in reading as a collaborative exercise. Mm-hmm. And I really deeply feel as though I understand that I can't put an image in your head. I can put some sound in your head, but also even that is, you know, relative. I mean, I, I might think, I mean, like you just heard me read some stuff that you've been reading to yourself. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'd be willing to guess that at least some of it was coming out of my mouth differently than you had heard it in your head before. And that's despite my best effort to try to control that. When, when I am trying to control mm-hmm. it. So I, I'm interested, I'm really interested in providing a reader with a map, but that map doesn't get formed until it enters your head, and I have zero control over what that will be. So I can put into it what I think is important, but that may not be what you end up thinking is important, and I'm okay with that. I mean... If you gave me a radical example, like what if you read that book and you told me that, you know, you think that it's about, uh, you know, uh, why Donald Trump is a maniac, I would say no. I mean, I have to say no. It really isn't about that. And primarily because it was all written before Donald Trump was on the political scene. But mm-hmm. but also because, you know, it, I, I don't think there's much inside the work that that would prompt that, except for someone who is just obsessed with Donald Trump. So... Um, but within reason, uh, I pretty much accept whatever take someone has on a work and hope that 
well, I mean, you were kind enough to look up a few words and to kind of follow a few of the breadcrumbs that I was throwing out there. And that, and so you became like an ideal reader. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Magra Radio, a broadcast project of Magra Books, streaming worldwide for your listening pleasure, bringing you news that stays news. Magra Radio is produced in Los Angeles by Sean Pesson and Paul Vangelisti.